Welcome to the Podcrastinators, bringing you a mixture of comedy, social and political commentary from New Zealand and around the globe. In other words, the show that's meant to make sense of everything, but quite often doesn't. Hello, I'm Darren Lees, a globally experienced businessman, politically to the right, stand-up comedian, comedy writer and, of course, podcast presenter. And I'm Matt Danaher. I'm an amateur writer, traveller, podcaster and Instagram influencer and professional union organiser and socialist who likes to be optimistic about the future. But, um, so, episode 12, who thought we'd make it this far in? Probably only the seven people that are still listening to us, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, I don't even think my mum listens to this. My dad does, but I'm not convinced my mum listens. Oh, mum needs to get with the game, doesn't she? She no. needs to just get with the programme. No, it's probably just as well, though, because given that I swear and stuff sometimes. <laughs> yeah. happy 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 12th anniversary yes happy happy 12th anniversary indeed uh it does feel like a bit of an achievement it's the second longest la- lasting podcast i've been involved in you're still involved in the other one yep we're taking a oh. bit of a break so i've got time to do this but uh <laughs> this um, is far more fun at the moment well exactly exactly this is this is more fun than the other one at the moment right now in, in <laughs> pandemic times um, definitely. Your uh, your mob have had a bit of a difficult week, don't you think? You don't need to explain who who's who's whose mob is it which now. <laughs> but before we come on to that, I do understand there's been a bit of confusion among some of our many uh, impressive number of Facebook followers, um, 250 plus now, uh, which is mainly down to your sterling behind the scenes work. So well done on that. But there's been some confusion, I understand, about who's making what posts on our Facebook. So I thought we should just clarify for, for the benefit of our listeners that generally if there's a post which um, makes sense um, and reflects reality, that's me. No, if, there's a, if there's a post that is maybe, should we say, a bit more sympathetic towards the current government and Labour Party, that's probably me doing it. And if there's a post that's maybe a little bit more on the side of the conspiracy of uh, Judith and the National Party, that's probably you, isn't it, Darren? Yeah, I, I was thinking, actually, whether we should actually put our name in brackets before we post and write something, just so people can then take exception with us individually, because you're right. This week, I think people have thought that we're a totally right-leaning uh, podcast, and then some other people have thought we're a totally left-leaning podcast. And I think we're actually the most balanced media in New Zealand at the moment. That's it. I think if you want to get an accurate source of news and there's all these warnings going around about fake news and not listening to your your auntie's mum's friends down the garage dog owner and their theories, you should probably come and follow the Podcrastinators NZ Facebook page and um, get a balanced picture of what's going on and actually find out. You know, don't even bother going to the COVID alerts website or watching those one o'clock briefings. Just come straight to our Facebook page and that'll tell you everything you need to know about what's going on. To be honest, most of the stuff that's been said on the one o'clock briefings has been found to be untrue anyway, so you may as well have come <laughs> here um, and listened and listened to us because I don't know any other media source at the moment that gives this amount of balanced view. Yeah, I'm not so convinced about uh, the one o'clock briefings being untrue, but um, I think you're right on ba- that we are the most balanced um, news source right now in New Zealand, probably. And hopefully we'll start getting the listeners and lis- the downloads and... Um, followers that we deserve oh totally for our totally totally balanced view we're both biased tremendously in our own way but together we're totally balanced right yeah i mean i'm not biased so speak for yourself 
speak for yourself there. Anyway, let me pick you up on that comment about the one o'clock news briefings <laughs> yeah, right, being then. accurate, because we have been told in a rather socialist way that we are to only listen to the government and only the government is the only source of truth. Two times this week, false announcements about where COVID patients have actually been. So is the government the really the only source of the truth? Because we had an announcement that there was a, a case at Pakaranga College, incorrect, a case of a multiple uh, visit to Pack and Save Glen Innes, which is way too close to my house, by the way, which was incorrect. So what is the source of the truth at the moment? Well, I still think that, you know, one or two mistakes and... It's an interesting thing from their point of view, because this and this is me being neutral. This is not me being um, pro-Labour or anything. Like I'm genuinely approaching this issue from a neutral angle. But I, I think from their point of view, it's really difficult, right? Because first of all, you've got to convince people, and I think you probably agree with me on this, not to believe your Billy TK um, junior nutters, the, the 5G um, bleach drinking fuckwits that are out there on Facebook that are spreading all sorts of kind of conspiracy, genuine conspiracy theory bullshit about covid and how it's transmitted and how you can deal with it and how much of a risk it is and on the other hand you're, you're trying to get information out as quickly and accurately to people as possible and the very the fact is that when you're trying to balance speed and accuracy and speaking personally working for an organization that is trying to inform our own members um, as quickly and accurately of information as possible mistakes do happen and uh, inaccurate information gets out there and the important thing is that it's corrected as soon as possible and the only way you can ensure clear comms for that is by keeping directing people back to the sources where you need them to where you can talk to them from having said that i do think um i don't think they're suggesting that you can't get true news from stuff or rnz or the herald or anything like that despite the fact i would argue that some columnists and commentators have been a bit irresponsible the fact is no one's going to say that the herald or stuff are, are spread as a fake news obviously one of your coalition partners has doubled down this week on the fact that it's been spread through a border um, breach something which the government hasn't admitted to yet so what are we meant to believe there well, I think the government are telling the truth that they don't know. You know, looking at it again as a neutral bystander, how else has it got in? Yeah, I mean... The most likely source is the border, right? It has to be, right? I mean, let's talk about conspiracy. I think we can all safely say now it hasn't come through on frozen peas. No, but it could, it could, be, it could be on... Uh, on chilled meat it could be on postal items coming through you know there are other no and i think that's the problem that a lot of us we actually just don't know what the risk is from different things that we're dealing with the other thing as well of course is the fact that we've now got two postal workers with covid yeah again unknown source i mean the, the interesting part about cluster is how big and widespread can something be before you can keep calling it the same cluster? Because we're now talking 16 different institutions or locations. How long before that is the same cluster? Well, I would, um, I don't know what your views are. Maybe I should start asking you some questions in a minute because I feel like um, I'm talking to Duncan Garner or something. Um, you know, the Bluff Cluster had like 98 people in it, I think, at the peak, uh, or in total, 98 uh, separate cases linked to it. A cluster is quite clearly defined as where the origin can be traced back to a single um, patient zero, if you like. So I don't think there's a limit to the size. One person can go to a tool concert and infect 500 people. 
potentially, that would still be a cluster. Those people, those 500 people can go out and infect another thousand people. That's still the same cluster. It's a cluster fuck when it gets over a certain scale, I would argue. Basically, that's the definition of a cluster. So I think that you've got the cluster and then you've got the, and I haven't, I must admit, I haven't followed the New Zealand Post story in the news today, but that we're not sure whether that's linked yet. That seems to be from a different source. And I'm, I might be wrong there. So just listen to Ashley at 1pm tomorrow to double check. Um, and then you've got the, the Ridges hotel worker that's clearly not from there. No, well, I mean, the Bluff cluster was easy explainable. Pretty much everybody was at the wedding at the same time. And then it was just obviously a few family members outside that. And everyone in Bluff is married. Everyone in Bluff is related, right? That's right. And that was just one family, wasn't it? Just together. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm thinking when you're talking about the post in East Tamaki, Americold, a finance company, a school on the North Shore, a school out West. These seem to be a lot of random individual places with random individual cases. Uh, it just, yeah, I mean, how many different locations have to be involved for it to be a cluster? I guess if it's deemed that the New Zealand Post guys aren't, and it's deemed that obviously now that the hotel worker isn't, this stays below 300 cases. I think that the government have dodged a massive bullet. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, we've got to keep remembering, right? We've always said this is coming. No one's ever denied this is coming. I think I said last time that I think there's a bit of an error in terms of talking about eradication when, when we shouldn't have. Um, or even though eradication can be meant legitimately in this way, it's not a common understanding of the word. Um, but we always said there was going to be a second wave and this is it. And it could well keep growing. And um, I'm interested in what your thoughts are about what's going to happen next week when they make the decision about whether to extend level three in Auckland or drop to level two or bring in level three elsewhere. What do we reckon so far? Well, uh, look, I think if you look at it as of today, there is no justification to move the rest of the country any higher than level two. There's, there's apart from Tokoroa, there seems to be zero cases. Again, there's apparently another case of COVID that we've potentially exported, which is interesting. Um, mm. it's, uh, that visited Hobbiton some point about a week ago and um, has now turned up as positive overseas. But when people are transfer, transferring through countries, you just have no idea. The two cases which I find most interested are the two that flew direct from Auckland to Sydney and tested positive in Sydney because there is no transfer between Singapore or any other country. But um, to go back to your question, I don't, I don't think there's, there's any way that they're going to put anyone back to level one yet. So I think the rest of the country will probably still stay in level two. I think if they can keep it below five cases a day linked to one cluster or maybe two, there could be an argument to bring Auckland back to level two from, say, Monday the 31st of August. But I think if you keep getting the odd double-figure day here or there, I wouldn't be surprised if it was extended for at least another seven days. I think that's absolutely spot on on both counts. I, I think that at the moment, um, fingers crossed, if we look at the patterns in this country from before, then we should expect to continue on a downward spiral. But given that we have had this apparently random breakout at New Zealand Post, uh, outbreak at New Zealand Post, um, and uh, we've got the, you know, we've got one case in, in managed isolation um, that shouldn't be there, one of the workers. Um, you know, the chances are that that's not going to stay at five. Um, and I think you're right. I think there'll be a real caution from the government in terms of how they are keeping us at level three. Like, I don't think they want to. 
I think they will move us to level two as soon as they think it's safe to. And it's just what level it's safe. Yeah, I think the good thing today, I saw something somewhere that the health minister, Chris Hipkin, is still ruling out level four. And I think he, I, I think it would be catastrophic if we ever had to move to level four. I think it would be catastrophic for the country. I think it would be catastrophic for the Labour Party as well, to be honest. Um, and that's why I say if this stays below 300, I think they've not only dodged a pandemic bullet, I think they've dodged a political one as well. I think that we just can't. I just don't see any uh, appetite from any direction, uh, including myself, to return to level four. Um, you know, people keep talking, not just you, everyone, I would argue, or not everyone. I'm not saying I'm, I'm the only person, I'm a prophet. Um, but we're all of us carrying on as if at some point we're going to return to normal. And um, at some time we can, we can think about the economy in the way that we used to. And for me, I just don't see there's any coming back from this. I mean, for the whole world, um, it's not just a New Zealand problem. And I mean, we're in a stronger position than many places. Um, I mean, we look at our own home country, biggest, deepest recession in recorded history now. Um, and for a number of reasons, can't just all be blamed on the pandemic. But the fact is, that's going to have a knock-on effect. The, you know, the US is rapidly turning into a developing country, um, although it's the opposite of a developing country, whatever that word is. And... Um, there's just there's no end in sight anywhere really the best we can hope for is you look at some isolated outposts in europe and here and um if australia can weather the current outbreak as well maybe japan and south korea will probably hang on but the fact is there is no business as usual there is no returning to how things were there is no you know even if the vaccine even if the russians are telling the truth about the vaccine even if the vaccine's rolled out even if there's another vaccine that's better than theirs developed in, in two months' time or three months' time, uh, we know if we look at the flu vaccines that only 60% only work on 60% of people. Uh, whooping cough vaccine works on 40%. We're never going to get a vaccine that works on 100% of people. We are now living with this pandemic for the foreseeable future in some way. And even if it goes, people are gonna, it's going to take a very long time for people to have confidence again. So what does that mean for the economy? And I don't have any answers, it's just questions. But I'm very interested in what that means for how we live. Because you're quite right, right? The economy is already fucked because of this, basically. Look, I think if you look back in history, we've had the Spanish flu, we've had the Great Depression, we've had the global financial crisis. And <clears throat> every single time the economy's come back and it's been stronger, like house prices in New Zealand have never been higher than what they are now. And, and house prices are still going up, even though we're in the middle of a damn pandemic. You know, there's some of the stories that are coming out of open homes and some of the stories that are coming out of auctions are unreal. Now, I know that might be a particularly Auckland view, but my understanding is that house prices around the country aren't particularly deflating at the moment. What's very interesting, I think, and I just take a step back, is when people go, oh, anyone who says, but the economy, the truth of the matter is the economy has to come first, right? Because if you don't have an economy and you, you know, think about where does the government get money from? The government gets a lot of money from tax, from people working, from industry. So if you don't consider the economy and you don't have businesses working and you don't have organizations investing and you don't have people employed and you don't have people paying tax, then the government's got no money. So the country fails to be able to even, you know, just exist 
you know, look at countries like Zimbabwe and places like that where their currency just got so horrifically deflated that everything was worthless, you know. And if we keep borrowing money recklessly and don't have any plan of paying it back and just think in 50 years' time some generation is going to pay it back, that's pretty reckless on everybody's behalf because regardless of who pays this back, someone's got to pay it back. We're here now and we're the people that are earning and contributing and can make a difference. So it's on us and on the government, whoever it is in September onwards, to ensure that the country can still operate in the best possible economy it can operate in. After the GFC, the American financial market was destroyed. Like all of the banking institutions went out of business, it recovered. Now, of course, with that, it was financial, it wasn't health. I guess the question comes is how much desire has the world got? Because you can shut this down eventually, right? If every country in the world said, we do not want anyone in, anyone out, it dies out eventually. You know, people are saying it cannot possibly die out in New Zealand. Yes, it can. You stop people coming in. You can let people leave. You just don't let them back. Now, I know that's really draconian, but the cases that are in the country now will eventually spread to the amount of people it can reach. And eventually, once people have cured and nobody else brings it in, it stops. Australia, any country can do that. Any country just shuts its border and nobody comes in, it stops eventually, it dies out. The problem is I don't think the world's prepared to do that. I think we're too selfish as individuals to allow that to happen because we still want our holiday and we still want our ability to roam around where we want. So if you wanted to actually shut this virus out, you literally just shut every border in the world for six months. Each country's economy can still operate. We're proving that now. Australia have been proving that since March. Australia's economy has never closed down. Yes, the hospitality industry has suffered, as it has everywhere. The travel industry has suffered, as it has everywhere. And it's suffering because people aren't travelling. But we proved for that short while, whilst we were 102 days free, domestic travel can carry on. Hotels were starting to get booked back up. Aeroplanes were starting to fill up. Air New Zealand was putting more flights on. Qantas was putting more flights around Australia. Fundamentally, this can stop. It depends on the world's desire to make it stop. Yeah, but what you're so what you're talking about, I would argue, is a radical transformation of the economy would be necessary because that's what the 100% closed borders around the world would mean. I mean, ignoring for a minute because I agree with you that that is the way to kill it kill it off. Ignore, certainly in a smaller country like this as well, a more sparsely populated country, that's easy to do. I mean, the reality is for a bigger country, it would take a lot longer for them for the virus to burn itself out. Um, well, if you think about Australia, they're closing states. America could do the same. You just well, stop did do, did between... do oh, did do for a little while in various yeah, ways. But um, you, you're right in the effect it changes the economy, but it changes it for like six months. And then wow. once, once you do... I think the biggest problem in the world is the fact that nobody trusts certain countries. And so if certain countries declared themselves free, I think there's countries in the world people don't trust. I mean, you look at some of the pandemic numbers, right? Russia's had about the fifth or sixth most amount of cases, and yet about 12 people have died. Like, seriously? If, that, if vodka can do that to the population, then I think we should all just start drinking excessive amounts of vodka tonight. You know, 
there's countries where you just look at the numbers and you go, that just simply cannot be true. And I guess the danger for the world economy is we could all make this massive effort to shut down for six months, hunker down, just have, you know, our own economies um, individually around the world. Product can still be exported in that, don't forget. Because at the moment, you know, when, when the economies are shut down, when we were level four... Except for frozen peas. Except for frozen peas and frozen food. We don't want any of that going anywhere. But we were still exporting to, to China and everywhere on level four. Food products, um, milk powder, etc. So shutting the border doesn't mean you can't export and doesn't mean you don't have an overseas economy. What it does mean is if you are going to move freight, it means you're going to move people. And then those people that are flying in between countries, you need to have a much better system than what we've got now of air crew landing and just getting into a taxi and going home for a week. That seems a bit shambolic at the moment, but if we could have a way of managing the people who are transporting the goods better, I don't see why a six-month lockdown and you can still export around the world, why that can't work. I don't think there's enough, I don't think there's enough desire in the world for it to happen. I think that's the problem. I think people want to still be too selfish. Well, and it would. The fact is, it, I'm going to get keep coming back to. I agree with you um, on both counts. I think that it could, that would be the one thing that would kill it off if we could trust everyone. And I agree that we couldn't. And I also think that there's not the willingness. And I think it's a bit like the, the what's the word, the Mex- Mexican standoff, really. Yes, You're going to put their gun down first. So you're right, but I, I will go keep coming back to this. The fact is, the examples you cited a while ago about Spanish flu and various crashes and things like that. The fact is the economy recovered because radical transformation happened and money was spent in a different way. And it's not about saying we can't have an economy or being against having an economy. What it was about was about looking at where do we spend the money to, where do we invest to be able to start building up a base, a good, decent tax base again. And I think that um, I think that that's something we've all got to ask ourselves very seriously over the next few years. Otherwise, we'll just end up chasing our tails and ever diminishing returns and looking at you know the situation we've got now where we've got thousands of people being made redundant that's going to continue because of the global economy not just because of what's happening locally and also you've got people like for instance you can't underestimate the huge number of people employed in hundred thousand dollar a year jobs in the aviation industry now moving into work for countdown will be unemployed and the sheer impact that has on our tax base so it's about how do we Actually, for me, it's about looking at how do we ensure that those people who are high net taxpayers, um, working people, not to go into minimum wage jobs, but can transition into similar jobs of equivalent value that are required elsewhere that actually could well become a requirement of the country due to the changes that are being brought about, the same changes that are losing them to those jobs. So, for instance... The tourism industry, right? 30% of the economy. I know what you're saying about domestic tourism. I would say that's not sustainable if we're basing it on increasing unemployment um, and low wage, a move from high wage to low wage jobs because people simply can't afford to travel after a certain point. Um, and there's no way you can replace all of those, those, what was it, 5, 10 million tourists a year that come into this country normally. So where do you find the alternative? Where do you get that 30% from that you've just lost? wiped out overnight where do you get that from and i think there needs to be serious work done to look at how you build up the sectors of the economy that might potentially replace it in terms of the income they would generate 
for people and for taxes and, and for business as well. So it's very much a, a, an outlook that would benefit business, in my view, if we took a slightly more long-term approach. Um, and yeah, I don't have any answers about where that would be. Um, but the fact is, there are, for instance, if we look at housing in New Zealand, right? Housing, there's a huge housing problem in that there's a load of shit damp houses. Um, we have a lot of people in this country right now who are capable of working in the building industry and people who could be trained to work in it. We could have a massive program of compulsory insulation and um, and I'm not saying charge landlords either. We could do a short-term investment of taxpayers' money into it because we're developing this a really good construction workforce, better than the one we've got now, um, and one that would no longer wouldn't need to rely so much on imported labour as it has done historically as well in the long term, and so therefore building up our resilience and sustainability within that sector. Um, I don't know. This is it stopped being funny about ten minutes ago. Yeah, I mean you're right. I mean we, it's not that we have a bad construction workforce now. We just don't have enough, um, and we've never had enough. And the reason the housing problem exists is the reason that consents can only go to 36,000 is because we simply don't have enough people. And to be fair, no, no it won't be fair because it was a ridiculous claim in the first place. The government's claim that they could build X amount of houses was completely not doable because they never had the workforce to do it. Um, it, was, it was completely unachievable. I, I, don't, I have no issue with their aspiration. <clears throat> I think it was a great aspiration to have. Um, but I think they misunderstood the lack of workforce and the fact that um, economic levers says that if you can go and work for the government on one of their projects at $100 a, an hour or you can go and work on a private building site for $160 an hour, you're going to take a private building site at $160 an hour every time. Um, but the other point about the economy, I guess, which is interesting is you can continue to have an economy and keep going. And instead of locking everything down or, or shutting every of the world's borders, then you look at a program of, well, actually, do you just protect the vulnerable? Now, the problem is there's a lot of people with compromised immunities that are actually in the workforce today. So do you just tell those people they've got to work from home? And, and I mean, if you look at Melbourne, Melbourne's the classic case, right? At the moment, if you look at Melbourne's fatality rate, in aged care facility, it's somewhere between 15 and 20% of all cases in an aged care facility are, 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 are losing their life. And the scary thing about that is there's 2,000 people in Melbourne in aged care facility currently with COVID. Um, so they could be looking down the barrel of another 400 people dying. That's because they let it get out of control. If you can protect those people, and God knows how, but if you can, you can still carry on operating because if you look at Melbourne's fatality rate outside of aged care facilities, and you've got to assume that some of these people are also 70, 80 years old, compromised immunity, that just haven't chosen to go and live in an aged care facility, it's about 1.4%. What I'm not diminishing there is the fact that it's a dangerous, lethal, infectious um, disease. But what I'm saying is there is a massive differential in your everyday population and your aged care compromised population that's saying actually over here, 1.4% of people are losing their life. Anyone losing their life is tragic, right? But over here, there's 15 to 20% of people losing their life. What do we do about stopping that? 
yeah, there's all sorts of different ways to, to look at it. But I do I do think there's a huge amount of vulnerable people that, as you say, are in the workforce here in, in New Zealand. A lot of that is a consequence of, of poverty of um, that's caused years of health problems, poverty and poor housing. Exactly. So coming back to my point about training up a work, a local workforce that are capable of just going in and improving the existing housing stock. And I don't mean by rorting landlords either, particularly. I mean, let's look at a sensible way of funding it. Uh, but just going in and doing it, um, you know, could well be a long term way of addressing some of those problems as well. And therefore, it means that if it does, if something like this comes back in again, or this comes back up in five years time, we're going to have less vulnerable people. I mean, just again, get on my high horse about the housing, right? We Housing in New Zealand is shit, even for those of us that are okay. Um, you know, I'm sat in my home office now in, in several layers, whereas back home I'd have the heating on and uh, in my, be in my T-shirt and to not be polluting the atmosphere through greenhouse gases either. Um, so, you know, that's... You're easy on you in a vest, so you must have yeah, a no, it's pretty warm today, actually, to be fair, to be honest. I've only got a T-shirt and a hoodie. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I just think it's. An, I think there's actually an opportunity here to look at a reinvention of the economy, and I don't even mean saying, "Oh, let's all go socialist, nationalise everything, and have a revolution." I mean, you know, secretly, I'm thinking that. Secretly, you're planning that. What you're on about? Yeah, it's, it's given it away. <laughs> lucky, lucky, no one listens to this. <laughs> I, I think there is an opportunity to to rebalance the economy in a way that works for every that can work for everyone and i think we just have to not panic and think about it and think about what we can do and actually there's some there is some, there are some conversations happening out there and there are there are um foresighted employers uh, involved in some of those conversations as well so you know what i would just keep going back to is when we talk about the economy i agree with you that ultimately what it boils down to is the economy because that is what is crucial people can only live or have lives worth living if there's a decent economy that delivers for them um, but I'm just saying, let's use the crisis as an opportunity to actually think about the how what didn't work in the old way of doing things and what's not going to work, what's even less likely to work going forward, and how do we address that? Um, given that we I can see what what's we happening, in the rest of the I know world. what we need. Yeah, well, I, I'll tell you what, I think the National Party needs more bridges. Bring <laughs> yeah, it back. Yeah, yeah back. we need Murph bridges back. That's what we need back. <laughs> yeah, Murph Manuela, what was all that about? I wish we'd been recording that night. That was. Uh, that was classic. That was brilliant. That was absolutely classic. I mean, that was something but, uh, that to any party as well. I'm not going to bash national over this. You get these, <laughs> these idiots in all of them. <laughs> no, that's right. Unfortunately, we've seen that throughout, right? But I know we've uh, been relatively serious tonight, but the one funny thing of the week, apart from thinking that the coronavirus came in on frozen peas, is the fact that Donald Trump has the audacity to call out New Zealand. Oh, I know. That was unbelievable. And the responses from our politicians um, were good, um, I thought, including Judith, to be fair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah good on you, uh, Judith. <laughs> Judy. <laughs> uh, Judy, as I call her now. Oh, yeah. Oh, you can get away with that, can't you? The woke left. But if I dare call Jacinda Ardern Cindy, I'm the filthiest misogynist in the world. Yeah. We're going to come back to free speech at some time in the future. Yes, we are. Um, yeah, no, I mean, Donald Trump, I mean, just what is he like? He's getting worse and worse. And the um, the interesting thing is, as well, is, um, is him saying, uh, the most recent thing he said yesterday was, as well, that he might sit, seek a third term if he's successful this time. US presidents can't, but under the That's Constitution, right. stand more than, one, uh, more than twice consecutively. 
But he's saying that because the FBI spied on him, which they didn't, um, during no. his first campaign, he should be entitled to run again. But what that made me think, though, is that I think we misunderestimate um, Mr. Trump. That actually, I think he's got a bit of a sense of humour there sometimes. Like, he's a fucking idiot, right? Um, and quite I often... He's got any sense of humour. I think everything he says is absolutely serious. I, I think know. he did it all. Occasionally he says stuff, and I think that's one of them, where I think he's having a joke. And he's taking think- it... Taking advantage of the fact that we expect the worst of him. Do you think him putting his face into Mount Rushmore is a joke? Exactly. So that's another thing that I think is a joke. Yeah. But maybe it's maybe, not. Maybe we should put him into the Grand Canyon. Something like that would probably be more applicable. He is completely bonkers. Hey, what do you reckon of, um, what do you make of the argument though about, so the National Party saying about how we need a credible, strong opposition and then not using all of their opposition questions. Yeah, interesting. We all make fuck-ups. Is it a fuck-up or is it a deliberate tactic? It could be a deliberate tactic. Can you save them and then later come back and then have more at a later date? I don't think that's a good no. <laughs> uh, maybe just bagging a few, you know, just putting a few in the bank for the future. What it reminds me of, what it reminds me of being politically balanced is at the start of this government... The Green Party, very naively in my view, because of the agreement they had with the government, where they weren't quite in the coalition, they had a confidence and supply arrangement, they still had their questions, but they decided that to be honourable, instead of using the questions, it would actually give them to the National Party. The National (laughs) Party then used them very effectively to completely skewer the government on something, I can't remember what it was. (laughs) But I remember being really annoyed and just thinking, you idiots. Look, I think the way that it's still heading, I think even with where we're at at the moment, I think the National Party is still going to need a momentum shift like we've probably not seen in New Zealand before. But we have seen in the world, and I know I bang on about this, but we did see it last year in Australia. Mm. Uh, The only question that was being asked on election day in Australia was who was going to be in Bill Shorten's cabinet. And by the end of the night, the um, alliance over there actually ruled alone. So... It's got to be one of those kind of shifts. And I don't know whether the National Party is trying to be clever. I think what the National Party need is a massively strong act, you know, almost like 8 to 10% of the vote. Um, Which they might get. They could get. And you know what? If the Greens don't poll at 5 and New Zealand First don't poll at 5 and Labour only poll at 42, for instance, uh, or 45, then it's potentially on. You know, if the Greens and... Uh, I'm thinking about this. I've been thinking about this. If Greens and New Zealand first poll at, say, eight, and um, Labour poll at, say, 41, and then you kind of get national on 30, 33 or something, and then New Zealand and then ACT poll at 10, I mean, it's doable. I mean, one thing, would the Labour Party drop is that, that more than 100 Hang on a minute. Is that more than 100%? Um, I think I would have worked that out pretty pretty cleverly. We'll have to listen back and see if I came to more than 100 there. <laughs> But it was it was it was it was the best that I could probably come up with without even actually uh, thinking it out. But what I'm effectively saying is it is doable and it is likely. I mean, I, mean, I don't think New Zealand First are going to get five. Um, I think the Green Party could will only get five if Swarbrick wins, wins Central. And I don't believe that National will poll as bad as they are, and I don't believe Labour will poll as good as they are. But whether they are going to swing that massively, whether it's going to swing that massively or not. But I'll tell you what, I'd be keen to know if a National Party strategy would be to vote national for your candidate and vote ACT in your party vote. Because if that happened and ACT got a, got a party vote of about 12%, 
that then changes things pretty dramatically. It's one of those things I've always said uh, under MMP, it's you, you vote party vote and electorate vote for the candidates you want. Don't try any strategies. But I am wondering myself whether actually <laughs> I might even cast a party vote for Green just to make sure they're in just to help make sure they're actually in Parliament, just to help us with the architect. It's an interesting point because I was thinking that the other night. I've got Simon O'Connor as my MP, who's the national MP, and, and it's been a pretty national area for a while. But I actually thought of putting my party vote to act. You know, so it's interesting that me and you that are both staunch Labour national um, are both actually thinking of putting our party votes elsewhere to try and skew a, a, an outcome. Mind you, I should, I'll have to go back and edit that bit out. I'll get in trouble at work for saying that. <laughs> you coward. I won't really, I won't really. I'll, I'll sum up some of my comedies up, mate, but uh, <laughs> get a bit of a stick now. I, I, will be right, I will be doing two ticks for paper, but I was thinking the same thing for the same reasons. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I do, you know, for nothing else, I, there's no way Labour are going to get 50% of the vote by themselves. It just is no. impossible. Um you know, I think less so now as well. Oh yeah, there's no, there's no question that our lead will, will narrow. Um, and in my view, we're all within the margin of error now, probably. And um, and I, I don't think we can underestimate the fact that you know you do keep talking about Australia, but I think you're right to, given that national strategists are the same people, um, and they are Kiwis, and they did the strategy for ScoMo. Um, yeah. So you know they're pretty clever and they're pretty good and they worked on Boris Johnson's campaign as well and yes. um, the the tactics are they are do, using the same tactics and I can sense them having an impact um, yeah. out there so we'll see we'll see it's, it means it's interesting it keeps things interesting right it certainly does I mean at least it's going to keep us going all the way through and we might have to do something pretty cool on election night maybe we'll come back Maybe we'll get some ideas from people and do some cool stuff on yeah. election night. I think it's a good idea. Our listeners should um, comment on Facebook or message us on Facebook or flick us an email um, at hello at the podcrastinators.com uh, with any ideas of what they'd like us to sit, see us do on uh, election night. Maybe we should have an axe throwing um, competition. Yes, go axe throwing. Depending on what level we're at. <laughs> and get, yeah, like, yeah. T- get two teams, get a, a sort of left leaning comedy team and a right-leaning comedy team of you and two other people. Which will be me. You and two people. <laughs> Which will be me and no one else. Um, as we uh, as we found out on Facebook last week when I decided to make one remark about the government. And was uh, still... Showered. I thought snowflakes uh, melted quicker than this. No, I'm still going up about it. I actually had one of your left-leaning colleague comedians actually... Um, sent me a very nice compliment and said, mate, you've taken a hammer in this week, but fair play to you. You've took it on the chin. Oh, so no, there was no backing down. It was, um, you know, if you're going to put yourself out there like I occasionally do, then unfortunately you're going to expect to be taken out. That's unfortunately something that your leader needs to learn, by the way. I had a little, bit of a, practice, <laughs> a little bit of a practice of that yesterday, um, sharing a clip on Facebook of a racist on the London Tube getting knocked out with one punch. And just said, yes, well done, London. This is how you deal with them. And no controversy whatsoever. <laughs> That's because everybody agrees that racists are fuckheads, right? That's what... <laughs> not everyone agrees with political what violence. Done, what you should have done is actually gone, oh, London, what are you playing at? Then seeing what the reaction is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm not a troll. A bit like me. 
Having, daring to question the Prime Minister. How dare I to question the Prime Minister? What but, would um, you... Um, so, um, we've got to go. I do have to apologise to you and the listeners in that there's a bit of fizzy popping when you speak. And I'm hoping that... I'm hoping that that doesn't spoil the audio of your clip and that because we record our audio separately, that it's not even on there at all. It's not detract... Everyone will be able to hear what you're saying. It's just a little bit... It's at my end, I think, the problem. Um, I didn't want to interrupt you mid-flow earlier because um, it was good. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. And, uh, look what I expected. Um, oh, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a shame. I wish I'd have had some of that fizzy pop candy. That yeah, that's what cool, it sound, sounds like you've been eating. Is there a final thought you'd like to finish us on? No, well, actually, I did think no? about one thing. And, and we, do, um, we are a comedy pe- a pair of people as well. And what I did want to remind people is that whilst Auckland's in level three, we have no comedy. Mm. The, the rest of the country has comedy. And whilst it's reduced audiences, uh, the good news is that I've seen comedy still happening down in Wellington and comedy still happening in Christchurch and Queenstown. So if you live in any of those areas, um, remember that it is restricted and capacities are now probably only half, but please get out there and support the comedy that's out there because comedy like tourism and and another entertainment this year um, has done it really tough. So um, my final thought is in those areas where comedy is still operating, please get out there and support it.